Money talks. But wait a minute, Reverend. Money again? Really? Didn't we hear about money last week and the week before? Yes. Indeed we did. The theme for this month is financial gifts. Coming right out of our covenant where we pledge to support this congregation with our presence, which was our theme in January. Participation, which was our theme in February. And financial gifts, our theme for this month of March. Now it is traditional that a minister prepare and present, oftentimes with no small amount of fear and trembling, one sermon a year that deals with money and invites people to pledge. This is sometimes affectionately known as the Sermon on the Amount. A sermon, though, not a series, not a month of sudden days, for goodness sake. Well, maybe you will be relieved to know that I don't consider this a pledge-centric service. I'm not going to talk about our budget and initiatives again. I addressed some of that a couple of weeks ago. Board President Barbara Curry gave a beautiful sermon last week about what goes into our decisions about how much we give to the congregation and give in general. You have heard or maybe will be hearing, as we heard in that announcement from stewardship, about our budget and new requests in cottage meetings, and we will have other venues to provide that information and engage in that conversation. But I do want to talk about money, or rather invite us to listen to Money Talk. Because as much as it may seem an inappropriate, even a distasteful topic to be addressed from the pulpit, as much as it may seem just a practical sidebar to the real work of our mission, as far as it may seem from nurturing spiritual growth and making meaning in our lives, well, I just read over our call to worship today from Lynn Twist, and I got to wonder, Money travels everywhere, crosses all boundaries, languages, and cultures. Money, like water, ripples at some level through every life and place. It can carry our love or our fear. It can flood some of us such that we drown in a toxic sense of power over others. Or it can nourish and water the principles of freedom, community, and sharing. Money can affirm life, or it can be used to demean, diminish, or destroy it. It is neither evil nor good. It is an instrument. We invented it, and it belongs squarely in the human experience, but it can be used by and merged with the longings and passions of our souls. Does that seem true? To you? And if it is true, doesn't it seem like this is a place where we should talk about money? I mean, I understand the reluctance. I understand how much money is being talked about nearly everywhere other than here. 
We talk about it on a personal and family level. It runs through every political discussion. Our future plans rest on it. Our present anxiety revolves around it. It is used politically as the primary measure of well-being. How are the American people doing? Are you better off today? Culturally, net worth is intricately tied into self-worth. It often shows up as the motivating factor driving the plots of countless movies and books and TV shows from murder mysteries to family sagas to literary classics. One need only think of Dickens. And it supplies the, the most valuable clue for getting to the bottom of nearly everything that really is happening on a national and international level, such that we have boiled it down into one simple, clear instruction, follow the money. Follow the money. And you will figure out what is going on. You will figure out why sometimes irrational, illogical, all too often immoral things are happening Follow the money. So I completely understand the desire to make this a financial free oasis far, far away from money talk and money thoughts and money worries and money woes. But for the reminders from our call to worship that money can carry our love or our fear. It can nourish and water the principles of freedom, community, and sharing. Money can affirm life. Or it can be used to demean, diminish, or destroy it. It can be used by and merged with the longings and passions of our souls. You see, money talks a lot in our society, but often it doesn't say much. Or rather, like the overbearing, self-absorbed person at a party that we do our best to steer clear of, it talks mostly about itself. It exaggerates its own importance. It inflates its own value. It becomes an end in itself, convincing us that we will always need more and that there is never enough to go around. And because we really do need money to live, it is not so hard to inspire anxiety about not having enough. If we are not lacking now, what about tomorrow? Money becomes more than a tool, an instrument. It begins to dictate what we believe is possible and what is not. We allow it to define us at the same time that we desperately yearn to define ourselves apart from it. And to the extent we have made an unspoken agreement within our congregations and religious communities to declare the subject of money off limits, we have done a great disservice to ourselves and to the world at large. How do we not talk about something that travels everywhere, crosses all boundaries, languages, and cultures? Something that, like water, ripples at some level through every life and place. How can that not overlap with our principles, our mission, and our most deeply held values. Because look around at what happens when we completely separate the work of economics from the work of nurturing spiritual growth, practicing justice, inspiring joy. 
I was so pleased to hear Barbara say last week that she was, quote, able to hold the idea of religions and economics together. Would that more of us could. Yes. Many years ago, I was in a political chat room after the WTO demonstrations in Seattle. Remember those? People filled the streets in 1999 saying that the way things are going, the way the World Trade Organization and the World Bank and the major corporations tied in with the most powerful governments in the world want things to go does not have to be the way it is. They said regular working people across the world should have a hand in economic decision making. What a concept. And I had been chatting with a man who was rather appalled at my support of the demonstrators. And he was trying to educate me about all kinds of strong economic reasons and theories on why I was wrong and the demonstrators were wrong in their demands. Somewhere along the way, I found that he identified as a Christian. And so I found the passage in the Gospel of Matthew where Jesus says, I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me naked and you did not give me clothing, sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Truly I tell you, just as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. Certainly I said if you believe in the teachings of Jesus, this has to have some ramifications for the work of the World Trade Organization. No, he said. You don't understand. That's religion. This is economics. That's religion. This is economics. He's not alone in making that distinction. Economics has in some ways become its own religion of the fundamentalist variety and the culture has often accepted the tenets of this new faith has accepted what Twist calls the unquestioned answers. Some traditional religions have even adapted themselves to incorporate this new faith as evidenced by movements like the prosperity gospel. Rather than holding economics accountable to the values of the faith, the prosperity gospel affirms that, indeed, financial security and prosperity are measures of worth, proof of God's blessing, a confirmation of God's favor. But where does that leave the poor, the struggling, the vulnerable? Are religious communities called to speak to a society where, in the words of a 1967 book titled by David Kaplitz, and these words are no less true today, are we called to speak to a society where the poor pay more? Are we called to speak to a society where the richest three Americans make more than the bottom 50%? Where we are encouraged at every turn to buy things, to address all of the many manufactured flaws advertisers assure us we have, and then chastised for not being financially responsible. Where we are invited over and over to take the credit we deserve and then criticized for living beyond our means. 
Are we called to speak to a society where anxiety about money is expected and encouraged across any and every level of income? It would be logical to assume, writes Lynn Twist, that people with excess wealth do not live with the fear of scarcity at the center of their lives. But I have seen that scarcity is as oppressive in those lives as it is for people who are living at the margins and barely making ends meet. The fundamental assumption of scarcity is all-pervasive. Famous for his considerable wealth, John D. Rockefeller was once asked, how much money is enough? His reply, just a little bit more. Just a little bit more. And if that sounds like the answer of an addict, I think that we might be catching on to the immense power that money can hold and the destructive power of the myth of scarcity that comes with it, leaving us open to selfishness, greed, desperation, and resentment. And when I say the myth of scarcity, borrowing that phrase from Lynn Twist, I'm decidedly not saying that there are not people in real need. There are people suffering real scarcity. But to the extent that we are all made to feel that way, and further that there is not enough to go around, the myth moves beyond a direct connection to money itself. It infects everything in our lives, and we render ourselves incapable of addressing real needs. Let me share another passage from this book. I was obviously very taken with this book, The Soul of Money. I highly recommend it. But this passage um, sort of captures that syndrome of scarcity that she's talking about. And uh, it was a passage to which I could relate and maybe you can too. For me and for many of us, our first waking thought of the day is, I didn't get enough sleep. The next one is, I don't have enough time. Whether true or not, that thought of not enough occurs to us automatically before we even think to question or examine it. We spend most of the hours and the days of our lives hearing, explaining, complaining, or worrying about what we don't have enough of. We don't have enough time. We don't have enough rest. We don't have enough exercise. We don't have enough work. We don't have enough profits. We don't have enough power. We don't have enough wilderness. We don't have enough weekends. Of course, we don't have enough money ever. We're not thin enough, we're not smart enough, we're not pretty enough, or fit enough, or educated, or successful enough, or rich enough, ever. Before we even sit up in bed, before our feet touch the floor, we're already inadequate, already behind, already losing, already lacking something. And by the time we go to bed at night, our minds race with a litany of what we didn't get or didn't get done that day. We go to sleep burdened by these thoughts and wake up to that reverie of lack. We live with scarcity as an underlying assumption. It is an unquestioned, sometimes even unspoken, defining condition of life. Unquote. 
but it doesn't have to be. Money, like water, ripples through every life and place. We can use it to carry our values or bury our values. When we view our relationship to it through the prism of our highest aspirations, we can better appreciate how it flows through our lives and become more actively and consciously involved in directing it to that which we truly care about, realizing that we are but stewards of these resources for a time. A reality encapsulated in that familiar phrase, you can't take it with you. This fellowship, said Barbara Curry last Sunday, offers an antidote to the economy and contradicts the narrative that others aren't trustworthy. We are here for each other and for others in the wider community and the wider world. Our world is one world. Its ways of wealth affect us all. The way we spend, the way we share, Who are the rich or poor? Who stand or fall? Money talks, but it doesn't have to use the vulgar speech of greed and avarice or the frightened, desperate tones of scarcity. It can speak in the rich tones of our liberal religious tradition. It can speak in the steady, compassionate tones of there is enough. It can speak in the strong phrases of our coming together. It can speak it with the courageous conviction of our best hopes for the future. It can speak with our voices. It can speak from our hearts. When we let our money move to things we care about, our lives light up. And isn't that what money is for?